0: The following episode of Annals On Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The prevalence of hypodostrum is much higher than we thought historically. Severe, I would say, is just by in the new guideline, greater than 180 over 110, which I think is what now stage 2 hypertension.
1: Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Today we're going to discuss primary aldosteronism. The article that we're reviewing is the Spectrum of Subclinical Primary Aldosteronism and Incident Hypertension, a cohort study that appeared in the Annals of Internal Medicine November the 7th, 2017. There's an accompanying editorial called Subclinical Primary Aldosteronism in the same issue. Our discussant today is Dr. David A. Calhoun, who's a colleague of mine at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He's in the Division of Cardiovascular Medicine and particularly works in the Vascular Biology and Hypertension Program and Center for Sleep and Wake Disorders. He runs a hypertension clinic that focuses on resistant hypertension, and he was the author of the 2008 Guidelines on Resistant Hypertension. We hope that you will enjoy this podcast. Let's start out by trying to get an idea of how important primary aldosteronism is in just any hypertensive population because it seems to me that I must have missed a lot of primary aldosteronism during my career because I only remember diagnosing it once.
0: Yeah, I think it was not uncommon for a lot of us when it was first described by Jerome Kahn and many years later it was thought to be a very interesting but very rare cause of hypertension. That was probably true up until the early 1990s. Then a number of studies, initially from Australia and then worldwide, really indicated that it was much more common than we thought historically. And those studies and subsequent studies have indicated that among general hypertensives, that it's probably around 10 to 12 percent. If you actually formally tested all these patients, you'd find about 10 to 12 percent actually meet the criteria for primary aldosteronism. And that prevalence goes up with more severe hypertension, as we and others have shown, especially high in patients with resistant hypertension. We've shown that among uh, patients with very difficult to treat hypertension, the prevalence is probably around 20% of patients, so even double that, what is observed in general hypertension. So it's a very common problem, and we're just recognizing that more and more.
1: So one of the things I found interesting In the beginning of an introduction to this study that we're going to have a discussion about was this new concept of abnormal cell clusters. I had always thought of primary aldosteronism as a tumor that's creating a lot of aldo, and the patient that I personally saw had severe hypokalemia, severe hypertension. We easily found his tumor, his adenoma, and had it removed. But I don't understand this abnormal cell cluster.
0: Well, it's really almost an emerging recognition, if you will. It's relatively new, I think, but it is a very intriguing observation. Like you mentioned, historically, primary aldosteronism was first described related to an aldosterone-producing adenoma, uh, so true Kahn syndrome. Then it was recognized that there were other cases that could be attributable to sort just generalized hyperplasia of the adrenal glands, most often bilaterally, but sometimes even unilaterally. Now it's been observed that among adrenal glands there are these clusters, this aldosterone producing cell clusters, so APCCs, that potentially are serving as a source of aldosterone in again, autonomous source of aldosterone that may be contributing to a lot of this excess aldosterone that we're now seeing in hypertension.
1: So I guess the implication of this is that when you talked about 10 to 12% of hypertensives are making too much aldosterone, you're not saying that they have adenomas, but many of them have these cells that seem to be autonomous, but you couldn't define them on a CT scan, but you could define it with a measurement of renin and aldo. Right, I think the
0: minority still, if you looked aggressively, would find a isolated or solitary adenoma as a source of their hyperaldosteronism. So instead, there would not be a discrete source. Historically, we have attributed that to hyperplasia bilaterally, but now we have these isolated cell clusters that have been identified. We don't know to what extent these cell clusters actually attributing to the aldosterone excess broadly. they've been studying a small series of of autopsy cases in the harvested uh, adrenal glands. So we don't know to what extent they're contributing, but it's certainly an intriguing concept uh, that this could be an important cause of this underlying uh, hyperaldosteronism.
1: I think this sort of is the necessary introduction to understand the study. If you could describe the way you read the study, and I have some notes, and I'll ask you some specific questions about it. But I thought the study was fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's, I think it's a very uh, informative, important study. So we've recognized, as we talked earlier, that the prevalence of hyperaldosteronism is much higher than we thought historically. And us and others uh, you know, have suggested that it's even more than, there's probably a role of aldosterone excess even beyond that of true primary aldosteronism. That is, there are lesser degrees of aldosterone excess and may not fulfill the criteria of true classical primary, but it's inappropriate nonetheless. So these sort of lower levels of disease. And this study is really in line with that sort of thinking that there are these subclinical levels of aldosterone excess contributing to development of hypertension and potentially to even more broadly to cardiovascular disease. What these authors did was an observational longitudinal study. It was based on a community cohort that had been put together and I think was followed for over 10 years, and It was a study. And it was looking at risk factors or predictors of development of cardiovascular disease. So in this study, they evaluated the development of hypertension, so that is, they were looking at incident hypertension in relation to the underlying renin levels or renin activity and also the underlying aldosterone levels. And what they found was that, firstly, just having a suppressed renin activity was common, very surprisingly common in this cohort. Almost 50% of these patients, again, these were patients initially without hypertension, but they were all initially normal tensive, but still they had 50% of them had suppressed renin activity, which would indicate or suggest some volume, inappropriate volume retention. That would be the most important mediator of renin levels. And we know that that's in large part related to aldosterone excess. So they found, firstly, that press renin was a strong predictor of development of hypertension. And then they also found, interestingly, that high aldosterone levels were also a strong predictor of incident hypertension. But only in patients with the low renin levels. So in my mind, it highlights, I think, an important concept that it's really aldosterone that's physiologically in excess. And what that is may vary from patient to patient. So the same aldosterone level may have different effects in different people. But if you get the combination of aldosterone or even normal aldosterone, which suppressed renin activity, then that seemingly is inappropriate. It's contributing to volume retention, and, and as this study shows, it significantly increases the risk of developing hypertension.
1: Just to put some numbers to it, they studied 850 patients like this, and as you said, almost half, 392 of them had suppressed renin, and even though many of them had normal aldos when you did an aldosterone-renin ratio, because the renin was so suppressed, that ratio was higher than normal, it was an abnormal number. There were 187 who had unsuppressed renin, and 271 who were indeterminate. I thought it was very interesting that the suppressed renin patients were more common in African-Americans and in women. And does that explain anything about what you see in hypertension?
0: Well, the higher prevalence of low renin levels, if you will, in African-Americans has been well known. We know that African-Americans have, are tend to be more salt-sensitive in general, and so that's in part reflected by lower renin levels. And the other association they found was older age, and renin levels tend to be lower in older patients. So that's certainly our experience in our clinic, African-American and older patients, and that's very, those two very common risk factors for someone developing resistant hypertension. The female gender I was a little bit surprised by. I would not necessarily have predicted that, because that's not our experience. You know, we don't necessarily see a gender difference in renin levels in our clinic. Interestingly, we do see a difference in aldosterone levels. The aldosterone levels tend to be higher. and This is in patients with resistant hypertension, so more selected cohort. But men tend to have a higher aldosterone levels. I think that's in part related just to greater adiposity, visceral obesity in those patients.
1: So now we have to try to put this into context. If you had aldosterone-renin ratios in your non-hypertensives, And it was increased, you'd know that that was a risk factor for them developing hypertension. That's what this suggests. Uh But can we actually use that in any way? You know, really,
0: that needs to be tested. That needs to be determined. I mean, that would be the implication, the potential implication, I think, of this. So the question is, should we be screening loss ratios in all adults or certainly in early hypertensives? I'm not sure that it would necessarily change treatment at this point unless... We were willing to sort of initiate therapy with an aldosterone antagonist. Right now, the spironolactone, I think, is pretty much reserved for resistant hypertension as a fourth drug. But this would argue that perhaps we should be using it sooner than that, using it much earlier.
1: I think that's a great point. We'll get into that in just a second. I just wanted to point out for the listeners that we always think of increased aldosterone and hypokalemia. But there are no clues in the electrolyte panel in these patients. They are not patients with hypokalemia. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that is when you actually start to have a larger tumor, and if you're relying on the potassium to diagnose increased aldosterone, then you're going to miss earlier cases.
0: Uh, again, Jerome Kahn originally described hypokalemia as sort of part of the, um, one of the, des- you saw the diagnostic features of Kahn syndrome. But even he recognized later that, in fact, hypokalemia was really a very late complication of the disorder and that it tested that clearly primary endosteronism would exist without having not yet manifested the hypokalemia. And that's been the experience now in in terms of screening for primary endosteronism. Most patients now have normal potassium levels. And so you really should not exclude patients from having primary endosteronism simply based on the potassium level.
1: So let's take this a step further. So we're not sure what to do before they're hypertensive. It's certainly possible that we might want to measure aldone renin in someone who is getting close to hypertension or early hypertension, depending upon what your cutoff is for that. But now let's talk about the internist in his or her office who has a new hypertensive. Should we be measuring an aldosterone and renin in all new hypertensives to try to direct therapy?
0: I think that would be debatable and I think it may be a little bit premature to be saying that. I would argue certainly the patient who presents with a severe or resistant hypertension needs to have a ratio checked and then I would argue fully evaluated for a primary aldosteronism. So
1: define severe for
0: the audience. Well, severe I would say is just by new guidelines, you know, greater than 180 over 110, which I think is what now stage 2 hypertension. I think certainly that would warrant looking for secondary causes and, and most commonly primary hypoterminism. And then resistance hypertension as well. I think there that the prevalence of primary hypoterminism is so common that you, know, you wouldn't want to miss that and it could help with the treatment. So the question is, and it has been for some time, is, you know, what about lesser degrees of hypertension in terms of severity or resistance? Will there be benefit in screening those patients earlier? Now, this study, you know, obviously didn't look into that. It's simply showing the association between suppressed renin and high ratios and in incident hypertension. I'd really said there's so many patients presenting with hypertension now. I don't know that it would be economical to screen all of them you know, for primary aldosteronism or even just for a high ratio, but that's really to be decided. I mean, that's exactly the study we need. You know, does an early measurement of aldosterone ratio and perhaps preferential use of aldosterone antagonists in those patients with high ratios, is that going to be effective, firstly, from a therapeutic standpoint? Is it going to be cost-efficient? I think that's to be determined at this point.
1: So let's say we have a patient with severe hypertension, because I'm trying to take this over to what I know my colleagues worry about all the time. So somebody comes in with early hypertension, they get either put on chlorthalidone, or they get put on ACE, or they get put on a calcium channel blocker, and one drug controls their blood pressure. We usually don't worry about those people very much. But now we're talking about the people with severe hypertension that you just defined would it change how you treat them if you find this increased aldosterone to renin ratio?
0: Well, it would for me, in that I would use perolactone much earlier, certainly in patients with a high ratio, or even now, you might argue, with a suppressed renin activity. There's a very important study in Lancet uh, diabetes recently from the Pathway 2 investigators, a study of resistant hypertension done in the UK. They found that a suppressed renin activity was a very strong predictor, as was a high aldosterone ratio, similar to what was observed here, is a very strong predictor of uh, response to spironolactone. So in that case, it clearly would help guide therapy. And I think, and again, but I have to admit, this is presumptuous at this point because studies haven't looked at less severe cases of hypertension. But I do think a suppressed renin activity probably would guide me, at least, towards earlier use of spironolactone.
1: And just to finish this line, when you use spironolactone, is it 12.5? Is it 25? How high do you go, and how do you know when to stop?
0: Well, I would say we are most often starting it at 25 milligrams, and that's in combination. Again, we're typically treating resistant hypertension, so we're using it almost always, right now at least, in combination with chlorothiazide. So we'll have them on 25 with chlorothaladone, 25 with spironolactone. I do start twelve and a half milligrams of sperolactone sometimes and that's usually in patients with some degree of CKD. I'm more worried about hyperkalemia, so may start at twelve and a half and of course patients will have to split that twenty five milligram pill to accomplish that. And I will now going as high as fifty milligrams. That pathway two study I've alluded to or mentioned. They showed that the benefit of titrating spironolactone from 25 to 50 milligrams for treating resistant hypertension, you got almost as much benefit starting spironolactone at 25 as you did titrating up to 50 milligrams. So there was a very steep uh, dose response curve. You tended to get benefit up to 50 milligrams. So that's as high as we're going now. I don't think anybody's really looked beyond doses higher than that other than in primary aldosteronism. How
1: often do you get side effects, gynecomastia and hirsutism, at 25 or at 50? Well,
0: hirsutism, we don't really see. So the concerns would be gynecomastia, breast tenderness, and then uh, sexual dysfunction, separate from the, uh, the concern is hyperkalemia. In terms of so the gynecomastia and breast tenderness, in our experience, I would say it's very uncommon. Doses of 12.5 or 25 milligrams will occasionally occur, so obviously mostly men. And it can be delayed. You know, they may be on doing great on smirloctone for a year, then they develop a tenderness or breast enlargement, and so we'll have to switch them to something else.
1: Does a plurinone work as well? So, and then we will
0: go, if 50 milligrams Though, and we have less experience at that dose right now, but we do see the side effects much more commonly at 50 milligrams than we do at 25, which I guess would be in a dose-response effect. Typically, we had been switching them to, if they're not tolerated, switching to clarinone, usually doubling the dose if we are. But again, pathway two investigators recently published that a milleride at 10 milligrams was about as effective as spermactone in these patients. And so I think more often we will be switching to a as opposed to a in these patients.
1: Well, this has been just a fascinating discussion. Why don't you take about one minute to summarize the importance of this article, put it into context for our listeners?
0: I think it's a very important study, and I think especially in terms of elucidating mechanisms of of hypertension. We've recognized the importance of hyperaldosteronism as a cause of resistant hypertension. But this study really expands that potential role of aldosterone excess in causing not only contributing to resistance or severe hypertension, but even initially, that is contributing to the development of hypertension even, So if that's the case, then it clearly suggests that aldosterone is a very important player in all stages of hypertension, from uh, development and then uh, later to treatment resistance. So I think it highlights the important role of aldosterone in terms of causing and uh, contributing to hypertension and the potential benefit we may have in terms of blocking aldosterone potentially, although again to be determined, but potentially in terms of preventing possibly preventing development of hypertension or treating it better at earlier stages with aldosterone antagonists.
1: Well, David, I can't thank you enough for helping us understand this really important article and putting it in the context of clinical practice. It's been a great pleasure having this discussion with you.
0: All right. Thanks so much.
1: Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This discussion is full of pearls, and I'll focus on three. The first is that primary hyperaldosteronism is much more common than we previously realized. Most primary hyperaldosteronism does not involve adenomas, but rather cell collections that produce extra aldosterone. We should measure aldo-renin ratios in patients who have severe or resistant hypertension. Most of these patients will not have hypokalemia, We define severe hypertension as 180 over 110 and resistant hypertension as needing a fourth drug. Finally, when we do find primary aldosteronism, we will often treat it with spironolactone, usually at 25 milligrams, but if they have 3B or stage 4 chronic kidney disease, we might start with 12 and a half. Some patients will have side effects, either hyperkalemia or gynecomastia. If they can't tolerate spironolactone, recent evidence suggests that milleride 10 milligrams, also works for resistant hypertension. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Thank you for listening.
0: For more episodes of Annals On Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.